All our readings will alternate between Luke chapter 23, which is on page 1059, and Isaiah 53 in the Church Bibles. And Isaiah 53 is on page 741. Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appeal to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I've found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they instantly demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their command. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Jesus has been arrested. Peter has disowned him. Jesus has been mocked by the guards. He stood before the council of elders, before Pilate, before Herod, and he's now back with Pilate as we join the story here in chapter 23 and verse 13. And Pilate is um, a little stuck here. Uh, He thinks Jesus is innocent, but it's Jerusalem. It's the Passover. The place is absolutely heaving with Jewish passion. And the Jewish leaders are staring up the crowds. And Pilate has a problem. Uh, He'd like to release Jesus. He thinks Jesus is innocent. But if he releases him, what's going to happen? It's looking nasty. There could be a riot. And uh, with this number of Jews in town, that's the last thing that the Romans want. And so Pilate tries to reason with the Jewish leaders who want Jesus removed. They think he's inconvenient. He is certainly rather challenging. But in an occupied country, you can't do the removal. 
the execution yourself. So they have to get the occupying powers to do it. That's the Romans. So they have to persuade, they have to manipulate Pilate. And if the Romans are going to execute Jesus, it's going to mean a crucifixion. And uh, it's, it's three times here that Pilate says to the Jews that Jesus is innocent. Before where we picked it up, just back in verse 4, and then in verse 14, and in verse 15 where it says that Herod finds Jesus innocent. And then on in verse 22, Pilate says, I found no grounds for the death penalty. And Pilate, what Pilate wants to do is to give Jesus a, a light flogging, really, is what it would be in verse 16, um, and then release him. There were two types of flogging in those days. There was the fustigata that Pilate speaks of here. That was bad enough, but it wouldn't kill you. And then there's a real flogging, the uh, verberatio, which would prepare you for crucifixion and would be so bad that it would actually reduce the time it would take for you to die when you were being crucified. So it's not looking great for Jesus. And then it gets worse. It looks like the Jewish leaders have been working the crowd. You look at verses 18 to 20, uh, 21 there, and you think, oh, someone's been getting to them. And then that uh, renowned theological commentator, Prince Philip, wrote this, or said this once, he might be described as an underprivileged working class victim of political and religious persecution. I'd say that was right. And Barabbas, the name, means son of the father. It could also be a general name. Luke tells us that he's representing us. And there is a deep irony to here as well, because the son of the father ends up being released. And the son of the father, capital letters, takes his place so that he may go free. And it's all just getting a bit kind of out of control, isn't it, here for Pilate? There's a lot of pressure, Pilate, on you, isn't there? And it's building... And in the end, Pilate, you're going to crumble and you'll take that line of least resistance. And that's what happens in verses 23 to 25. Verse 23, with loud shouts, they, that's the crowd, insistently demanded that he, that's Jesus, be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. And it goes on. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison. Barabbas for insurrection and murder and the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. How does that make you feel on this Good Friday afternoon? Instinctively, I rage against it. It is unjust. It is unfair. It is unreasonable. It's just plain wrong, isn't it? Pilate caves in and you have here an innocent man crucified in the place of a guilty man who walks three. You see, Jesus and Barabbas have swapped places. And that's what the cross is. The cross is a swap. Jesus swaps with Barabbas. Jesus has Barabbas' death. 
Barabbas as Jesus' life. It's a swap. And it's meant to be a picture of what the cross achieved for us. So instead of Barabbas, you're there, guilty and condemned. Because of your sin and your rebellion against God. But Jesus swaps with us. So he died your death. And we have his life. And it's a just and a righteous swap because we know that Jesus did this voluntarily for us. The cross is a voluntary self-substitution of the Son of God to die in our place so that we might have eternal life. In a few moments, we're going to spend a little time pondering, thinking, wondering, sitting amazed. We have three opportunities for that this afternoon. But and as we do so, let's remember this simple and profound truth that the cross is a swap. But first, let's hear from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Luke 23, verse 26. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, 
and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The cross is a swap, and now we'll see it's a paradise opening swap. Well, after Pilate's decision, verse 26 here, the soldiers led Jesus away. They seized Simon from Cyrene. It's in Libya. He was on his way in from the country. Uh, He was probably there for the Passover and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Uh, It was probably the cross beam, the horizontal bit of the cross, the particulum, and I guess it may as well have been about the size and weight of a railway sleeper if you've got raised beds in your garden. 
They often employ railway sleepers, don't they? Um, so you'd know what it looks like. And he followed Jesus up to Calvary. And it's another authentic picture that uh, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then you need to be prepared to carry your cross, to go through the ordeals, the troubles, the persecutions, the discrimination and so on, which followers of Jesus have and will have coming their way. And as they go this rather long and roundabout route up to Calvary, it's acting as a deterrent to other people as they do so. There's a long procession. There's a lot of people there. Look at verse 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him, as though Jesus were already dead. This is a one-way street. And Jesus uses this opportunity in verse 28 there. It says, Jesus uh, said this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And just to abbreviate the next little bit, you've got the most appalling time heading your way. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, about uh, well, what would have been about 40 years later at the hand of the Romans. He's saying, if the Romans do this to me, how much more is this going to happen to you? And he's also saying, actually, what I'm about to do will result in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And it will result in the end of Judaism as a saving religion. And in verse 31, there's a rather curious thing there, isn't it? For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus is saying there, I think, that uh, he is the green tree of righteousness and truth and life. A few minutes is going to be nailed to the cross. How much more will awful things happen to a dry nation and a dead religion which wants Jesus crucified? And they come in verse 33 to a place called the Skull. In Latin, it's Calvaria, from which, of course, we get our word Calvary. In Greek, it's cranion, from which, of course, we get our word cranium and then skull. It looks like a skull looked at from one angle. And uh, there Jesus was crucified. And crucifixion was an obscene horror. I mean, we say, don't we, things like, well, yeah, Jesus was crucified. Coffee, anyone? It was a despicable way to end someone's life. How would you respond if you saw a cat or a dog crucified? Uh, We would be outraged, rightly. And yet our crucified saviour went to a cross for us. And there he laid down his life. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He creates the universe already for seeing, or should we say, seeing. There are no tenses in God. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. The flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the medial nerves. 
the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may, may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Here in his love, this is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. And our savior was crucified out of love for us. And he prays for forgiveness for the soldiers in verse 34. He was mocked. He was mocked by the religious leaders in verse 35, by the soldiers in verse 36, and more in verse 37. And then by even by one of the criminals alongside him in verse 39. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And there was a little procession up to the skull. It wasn't just Jesus and Simon Cyrene. In fact, it wasn't a little procession. It was a whole big crowd of them and uh, the soldiers and so on. But there were these two others going up to be crucified that day as well. One of them hurling these insults at Jesus. The other couldn't be more different in verses 40 and 41. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly. For we're getting what our sins deserve, our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Someone else saying that Jesus was dying an innocent man. He's done nothing wrong. And that is really important. Because if Jesus had done anything wrong, he'd be dying for that. And not for us. And there'd be no swap. Unless Jesus is entirely innocent. And then this guy, who's nailed up there next to Jesus, says this extraordinary thing in verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There you see, he's recognizing that Jesus is a king. He's recognizing that Jesus has a kingdom. He's recognizing that death is not the end. He's recognizing that Jesus has a future rule. And he's recognizing that he himself may be nailed up there next to Jesus. That maybe, perhaps, might just be able to be there with Jesus in his future rule. Now you could be here today and maybe just thinking that, well maybe I'm, I don't quite see that I'm a Christian believer in the same way that maybe some of your family and friends are. If that's you, would you ponder verse 42? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom and why not make that your own today why not and then look at verse 43 jesus reply 
Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The root of the word paradise, you know, is garden. It's meant to remind us of the first garden, the Garden of Eden, where there was unity and where there was harmony between the creator and his creation. And it's meant to remind us of the picture of the new heaven and the new earth, the perfect garden once more that we look forward to as Christian people. And it's meant to show us that paradise is being with Jesus for the best existence ever. Oh, and did you notice also, verse 43 means there is no purgatory. It doesn't exist. There's no need to purge our sins. There's no need to wait for heaven when we die or when Jesus returns. We go to be with him. No waiting room. So we're seeing here the cross is the most wonderful swap. But more than that, more than simply a swap, it's a paradise opening swap. How glorious is that? Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Luke 23, verse 44. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion Seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. 
When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who came with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. A paradise opening swap. And it's quiet now. It had been quite a noisy scene, but not anymore. It's quiet and it's dark and it's getting cold. Quiet as three men suffer and die. One of them isn't just being crucified, if you can put it like that. In the summer of 1966, it's not only the summer when England won the World Cup, but the summer when I was at Worsley Bridge Junior School. And one day that summer, Simon Pilcher brought a very large magnifying glass to school. And he used to enjoy playing with it in the playtimes, in the playground. And uh, he would get a, a bunch of us around and then he'd set bits of paper on fire using the sun's rays focused through the magnifying glass. He then found an unfortunate bug and did the same. And just as a magnifying glass focuses the sun's rays in one spot, so the cross, the wrath of God, was focused down on Jesus as he bore the sins of the world and was punished for them. The pastor, uh, Kent Hughes, wrote this, Jesus suffered with an intensity no other being could possibly suffer. And so imagine a, a Lord of the Rings type scene as a dark valley surrounded on every side by huge and precipitous mountains. And in the valley bottom, 
there is a solitary figure, a man. And then you look around and you begin to see that there's a a dark slurry overflowing the edges of the mountains and coming flowing down from all sides towards this man in the valley bottom. And he waits for it. And it comes. And it engulfs him. And it overwhelms him. Jesus on the cross. In verse 45 is a simple statement. The sun stopped shining. Another visual aid as we see the depth and the profundity of what was happening and the results, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain was about as thick as my hand, apparently. It was made of Babylonian yarns in blue and white and red and purple and had cherubim, heavenly angelic beings embroidered upon it. And it separated the Holy of Holies, representing where God was, and everything and everyone else. And as Jesus was crucified, it was ripped in two. It was shredded. So you could see the Holy of Holies now. In fact, you could go into the Holy of Holies. And this is a huge visual aid. It used to say, keep out. It now says, go in. Jesus won that access through his death for us, for you and for me. Astonishingly wonderful. And then he dies. And the centurion, look at verse 47, seeing what had happened, praised God, not bad for someone who's meant to be an atheist, and uh, and said, surely this was a righteous man. I wonder if that's a court-martial offence. Maybe it's better better translated, actually. Surely this was a just man. And he's recognizing there, um, in Jesus' death, that he acted rightly or righteously. He recognizes that Jesus' death was actually a good thing. He recognizes that actually it was good Friday. Because Jesus' death was a good death for sins to open the way, the door to paradise. Jesus' death, a paradise-opening righteous swap. A paradise-opening righteous swap. What a good Friday. But of course it doesn't stop there. Um, Wellington. He represented the last proper opposition to the French army under the command of Napoleon. And everything came to a head or came to a focus 
at the Battle of Waterloo. And to communicate the result of the battle, uh, they devised a system of flashing lights and church towers across Belgium to the Channel Coast and then across England to London and across the rest of England and so on. Uh, and the message was, Wellington defeated Napoleon. Well, from the battlefield, uh, the message was transferred safely and securely across Belgium. When it reached the Channel Coast, there was a sea mist, and it came and went, and it came and went. And from one side of the Channel to the other, they couldn't quite be sure what was being said in this message. And, uh, and they thought it just simply said the first two words, Wellington defeated. And for hours, the nation uh, feared the eventual overthrow of their country until the sea mist lifted and they were able to see clearly. And then they had the complete message. Wellington defeated Napoleon. Well, on Good Friday, it looked as if the message was Jesus defeated. But remember... We've got a whole weekend here, and it's not just today. Look at verses 50 to 56, preparing for the resurrection. First, Jesus has died. Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea is just near Jerusalem, and uh, uh, he asks Pilate to release the body. The clear implication is that Jesus is dead. And the Jews didn't believe in unburied corpses, so he needs to be buried. And the women who go there on the Sunday morning see which tomb Jesus is laid in. So there'll be no mistakes on that front on Sunday morning. In that early pre-dawn in a couple of days' time. But I love verse 54. Perhaps in particular, it was preparation day. That's... Friday until sunset when the Sabbath began. But anything also, Good Friday is preparation day in a far better sense. It's preparation day for Easter Sunday. Because this was uh, a victorious death. Jesus did it. He achieved this paradise opening righteous swap. He did it, and we'll be celebrating with all of our hearts on Easter Sunday morning. Now, doesn't that have to be the best day of the year for Christian believers? Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant 
will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors.